The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 183. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart, Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the fourth Doctor story, Planet of Evil. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Folks, please, if you have not yet done so, make sure to subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Tune in, Spotify, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. So as I said, we're talking about the fourth Doctor story called Planet of Evil. This is aired in September of 1975. It's the Doctor's second season. His companion is still Sarah Jane. In fact, it's the first story where it's just Sarah Jane and not Harry. Because we dropped off Harry in Scotland. Yes. He didn't, was, didn't trust the doctor to get him back to London five minutes before they left, and he was right to do so. What, what a shock. <laughs> yes, Harry was right <laughs> as usual. And, uh, so, and it's a, this is a four-part serial, uh, as they often are at this, at this time in the uh, Doctor Who series. Uh, so the, the, the basic recap in this is uh, the, the doctor and Sarah uh, are at the edge of the universe. Instead of being five minutes before they left in London... They are 30,000 years later at the edge of the universe where the doctor picks up a distress call and they find themselves on a planet called Zeta Minor where a geological team has run afoul of something very strange. And this series is basically Forbidden Planet that then later turns into Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I and I identified both of those in my notes, and then when I, I looked at the TARDIS wiki, it said, this episode is inspired by Forbidden Planet and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's like, no, <laughs> duh. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's not even subtly that that way, yes. And so it... It takes place mostly on the planet in this jungle. And I have to say, they they do a good job with the set design on this one. I mean, it's yeah. still mm-hmm. 1975, and so you, you get you get that quality. But for the time, this is a pretty verdant, big, messy jungle. And, and an alien one, too. The jungle set yeah. is the best thing about this episode. <laughs> <laughs> for any TV jungle, this is really, they really pulled out all the stops on this. You have, even though it's set in a studio, you have like places where the floor of the jungle is liquid. So instead of just having a concrete floor, it's got water and people are splashing around in the water. And it's got all these alien plants and that look, you know, they clearly did not just drag this out of stock, out of the props department. Uh, They made this and it's very dense. It's better than Star Trek jungles. Yes. 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 Uh, Star Trek, Star Trek sets. So I mean, it's the the infamous big foam rock is usually what Star Trek looked like. <laughs> unless they were like later on, they would go on to location, in, you know, in some uh, park in Los Angeles, like on Shore Leave that episode. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, it was just like big foam rocks on a soundstage with uh, with jangly. rubber tree plants that people run through. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. They they must have had to haul in a bunch of dirt too, because there's like piles of dirt that they're climbing over. And I mean, they yeah, they they went impressive. out all out. Uh, it it did remind me a bit of the fire swamp in Princess Bride, if mm. you if you remember that. So there was a bit of that. Uh, so you have this misty jungle. We open on this misty jungle, and uh, there's a a metal structure, a building, uh, you know, a man made structure of some kind. And we have this very interesting sort of pre roll pre you know pre credit sequence where this guy comes out. He looks bedraggled. He post plants a grave marker next to other grave markers. So obviously. Whoever these people are, there have been people dying here. 
And and I like without saying it on screen, they tell us it's the year thirty one seventy seven or yes, is just because it's on the grave marker, so we know exactly right. when we are. And luckily, English has not changed. And then <laughs> they uh, we have two men in a cave collecting some type of uh, geological specimens, broken crystals. glass. They're getting broken glass off the floor. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to <laughs> clean up the broken glass. You don't want to get a cut. Uh, one of them, we'll find out his name is Professor Sorensen. He says that the he, he claims that the planet is alive, and he's obviously a little bit on the edge of mental health. Let's <laughs> just say that. Mm. That's his point. Uh, he, and he believes that the planet is alive and trying to hide this ore, this glass that they're collecting, uh, from them. If they don't collect it now, it won't be here later. It's, just, it, so, it's trying to trick us. So now we've got the crazy scientist who's going to set up the conflict later, because, of course, that's such a trope yes. in... Or Doctor Who is not even funny. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we haven't even hit the major trope for this episode. Yeah. No. <laughs> right. But meanwhile, uh, Brown, the guy who has been talking to them over the phone, back, who set the grave marker, he's he's suddenly attacked by an outline of the invisible monster from Forbidden Planet <laughs> right. and disappears. And, yes, he, he collapses and, to the ground and he's, he just disappears off screen. Yeah, but he'll be back, or at least his desiccated corpse will. <laughs> yes, the the other yeah the other guy the, who was with Professor they had to be back before dark. You know, otherwise, the big bad wolf gets you. And, but the professor wouldn't leave, so this guy said, "Well, you're on your own. I'm go- heading back." And so when he gets back, same thing happens to him. The same thing inside the structure. So then, so that's our open. Like, what's going on here? So then we we cut to doctor the doctor and Sarah Jane in the TARDIS, and uh, she. She tells him he's reneging on his promise to take her back to London five minutes before they left, and he's being all snippy about it because she's right. (laughs) And she's having fun giving him grief about it. Yeah, and this is incidentally the first time we've seen Tom Baker in control of the TARDIS. Previously Mm. in his stories, we either haven't been inside the TARDIS or haven't seen him working the controls. Right. That's interesting. All the way into this, this, his second season. Yeah. Um, And they, they received this distress call from from this planet zeta minor and the doctor eagerly says stand by for emergency materialization he's like he seems very you know excited to uh, to get this distraction <laughs> from his failure to get her back to london and then once they're on the planet they're trying to find the source of the distress signal and while they're like climbing through the jungle sarah jane hears the same noise that the guy brown did before but instead of dying and disappearing she goes rigid for some reason we don't ever really get an explanation for why Sarah Jane is affected differently, do we? No, but she says she feels like she's being drawn out of her body. Right. But she never really gets drawn out of her body. She's just in an she's in she's having an abstraction for a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh meanwhile, uh a ship enters orbit and this crew who have these fabulous costumes, these blue with the white <laughs> piping on them. I was going to say, the, the ship looks like a cast-off Starfleet vessel. It's got similar designs. Yes, it does. And a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even a vacuum cleaner. Uh, they, 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 in dialogue, they explain that this is Zeta Minor, the last planet in the known universe. I'm thinking, like, last as in they're all, others are all gone, or just on the edge of the universe, but... It seems, uh, how do you- it, it seems to be edge, from what they say. Like, when right. Sarah Jane later says she's from Earth... It's like, oh, yeah. well, that's over this other galaxy and beyond that galaxy and so forth. So I interpreted this as as the farthest extent spatially, the farthest right, that, mapped planet in the known universe. It, on the maps beyond this planet, it says, here there be dragons. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Invisible dragon monster. So uh, they're, they're there because they're looking for this expedition on the planet that hasn't reported in in months. So they're, they're, they're come to check on them. Uh, meanwhile, yeah, Sarah Jane has recovered, and they find now they find Browns, the the guy from the structure, his desiccated body outside. It, it looked, and they say, "Oh, it looks like he's been dead for months, but it's only been minutes, right? Uh, he, that mm-hmm. he's been dead. So how could that be?" Uh, inside, there's the power of the structure has been drained. The the all the power systems have been drained, and so that the doctor is going to try to get power back up and running, while Sarah Jane runs back to the TARDIS for a spectrometer. And I'm thinking. A spectromixer. Really Spectrum. I'm sorry. Yes, I I substituted real scientific instrument for science fiction <laughs> science instrument. Uh, and by and, spectromixer, uh, they mean astrolabe. 
Uh, right. Because right. all they're going to do is take a star fix with it. Yes, yes. And it, it, there's an interesting uh, little back and forth about the TARDIS key. Apparently, the Doctor's been stingy with his TARDIS keys with his companions at this point. She doesn't have one. Yeah, he doesn't hand them out the same way he does in New Who. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's interesting. So once she's back to the TARDIS, these the men from the spaceship have beamed down, or whatever it is they, they do, uh, and they... They decide to transport the TARDIS up to their ship, so they they hook some stuff up to it while she's still inside. And at the same time, the professor is is watching them from the bushes nearby. He doesn't trust them, uh, so he's still a little unbalanced. But when he when they do find him, they he tells them that the mission's a success, yeah, even though everybody else is dead. The mission is success, and then they <laughs> they find the doctor standing over dead bodies and immediately assume that he killed everybody somehow. And this sets up the most common, it, this is one of the single most common Doctor Who tropes, is yes. the Doctor and companions stumble into a situation and are blamed for something bad mm-hmm. that's happening. This, and yeah. then you have a split among the people who are blaming them, where you have one person who is irrationally convinced yep. that they're to blame and wants to kill right. them. And in that case, it's the controller of the uh, Morestran space probe ship. And yes. then you have somebody else, and like a counselor in this trope, who yes. is not convinced that the doctor is responsible for the bad thing. And so that's the exact plot line that plays out now. You have the Morestran controller convinced that the doctor and Sarah Jane are killing people, and so they need to be executed immediately. And uh, the advisor to the Morestian controller, a guy named Vyshinsky, is not convinced that they are responsible. And so we have this regular back and forth between kill them, no, we don't have proof, and respect my authority, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's the, so the controller, which is the equivalent of captain, I suppose, Salomar, yeah. is so over the top. and But it's it's so funny, he, he just... He's blown like the wind, you know what I mean? Like, like he just, mm-hmm. like a windsock. It's oh, like, yeah. he, he's co- completely convinced of opposite things at the merest hint of, of, of coincidental evidence. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, he also is, I, I, other people keep making suggestions or issuing or say, let's do this. And he'll hop on it. It's like, wait, I'm the controller. And nobody does anything until I say it. And then he gives the same order anyway. And it just, it happens over and over again. He's like, yes. he's he's very, very respect my authority, but then he gives in to whatever other people are saying. Well, it was it was funny to watch because I, I was, I, you know, was thinking, you know, kind of like the military where the controller was the young, you know, second lieutenant, first lieutenant who really doesn't have a lot of experience. Yes. And then the Shinti is the you know senior nco he's been in the military for thir- <laughs> before this guy was even born he knows everything that's going on and he's there going okay dude i you you gotta listen to me i know you're the one in charge i'm the one who knows <laughs> yeah. what's going on and yeah. of course that's what it ends up being in the end you're a 22 year old second lieutenant and i'm a sergeant major who's who's been in, in the military before you were born yeah i mean that's, that's exactly that's, i mean that's, that's exactly the, like. the 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 the, pl- the dialogue here where Vishinti's like, we got to do this. And he and the controller immediately jumps down his throat, but then gets convinced to do it anyways. It's a very much a typical like tin pot dictator. Like if you give a guy a little bit of authority, he's going to hold on to it as much as he can. And that that's what it feels like. Uh, meanwhile, th- back in the cave where Sorensen was collecting glass, uh, something is alive in this pool of water, this inky black pool that's in there. Um, if it's a pool of water, it's kind of inconsistent. Yeah. At one point, Sarah Jane describes it as a pool, but the doctor points yeah. out you can't see your reflection in it, which is creepy. But then it also, right. people just fall into it like it's just a pit. Yes. So I was unclear, is this supposed to be a pool or a pit? It's kind of both. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, Sarah Jane and the doctor are, are brought together into the structure. Uh, she, uh, she's brought down from the... the uh, they landed the spacecraft. She's brought over to the structure. They're imprisoned in this room. These guys are like the worst like guards ever because they put their throat <laughs> in this room together. And she comes. She comes up. By the way, she comes yeah. up with the idea of escape out the window because the doctor's forgotten that the power is low, and so whatever keeps the windows locked isn't working. So they go out the window. 
Well, that's that's one thing I, I did like in this is there are a couple of points where Sarah Jane gets to be the clever one. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, because the doctor, she goes, well, let, let's let's sneak out. And the doctor says, how, how are we going to do that? The window? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, Sarah Jane feels a lot like the modern New Who companions, yeah. in, at least especially in this, but at other times. I mean, she's probably the most like modern New Who is, uh, that I've seen so far. And that's why after Jamie left the show, she was the most popular companion mm-hmm. of the classic era. Right. You know, right. but it, yeah. it, it is interesting to go back and watch these shows, having watched now what 12 seasons of, of New Who. And it's that some of the old, you know, the old companions were known for being shrieky. You know, they, their job was yeah. there to look good on screen and shriek. Yeah. And, but the Tegan. more you watch these old companions, <laughs> they're not quite that. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of them that that were, you know, we kind of laugh about uh, the second doctor and and uh, and you know, oh, go make some tea. Oh, yeah. Okay, doctor, you know, just kind of get yeah. fluffed off. But a lot of the companions, they actually did stand on their own quite a bit. Of course, yeah. then we can talk about Leela, who just basically runs things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, uh, so the the first episode of these four episodes ends with uh, this outline menacing the Doctor and Sarah. Yes, this uh, partially invisible creature, as I wrote, uh, approaching them. Uh, so, the, uh, as they're outside the structure, and then this sentry comes along as the next episode begins. Se- uh, sentry comes along and shoots at it, which draws its attention to him, letting the the Doctor and Sarah get away, uh, and he dies, obviously. One thing I like about the guns that these guys are using, and now they're energy weapons, but yep. instead of the classic beams that you would yes. see like from a phaser or something, it's like a flash of light, and and it it causes a flash of light where it's being aimed. And right. it's a nice change uh, in the special effect from the standard special effect we're used to seeing. It's not only is it more accurate to what a laser actually looks like. You don't actually usually see a laser beam. You just right. see the effect. Mm-hmm. It's also a lot cheaper to <laughs> It's a lot yeah. cheaper. You just have little flashes. Flash bulb. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, they have to rotoscope in the, uh, the phaser blast. Uh, so Sarah Jane tells the doctor that when they saw this creature, she felt like she did before. So it's connected. And then the creature also is apparently draining power from the structure. So that's where that went. Uh, went. So the Morestrians come along, and they think that the Doctor and Sarah, that, that's what they're called, Morestrians, I didn't mention before. They think the Doctor and Sarah killed the sentry now because, you know, they were seen near the body. They had just they had such bad luck. <laughs> they keep standing over dead bodies. I, I want to mention, too, that one of, one of the, the guards or one of the, the, the soldiers is Ponty. And Ponty was played by Lewis Mahoney, who was the elder Billy Shipton in Blink. Oh, oh yeah. In the in 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 bed, he's when he, the one. Yeah, he he's dies the one that was in the hospital dying because the angel sucked him back in time, and then he lived his life. Oh, and then was and died in yeah. bed shortly after. That's why he looked familiar. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I yeah, only yeah. mentioned him because he's the next one to die. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, poor Buddy. So in, in the jungle, something this invisible thing passes the doctor and Sarah by for some reason. Uh, and then he begins to quote Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, basically to say that the creature doesn't like daylight. Let's get this long quote. Yeah. Um, and then he talks about how he met Shakespeare. So the doctors met Shakespeare a few times, I guess. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the Morestrans decide to send out a drone to track the doctor and Sarah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> an oculoid. And it's called an oculoid because it's got a big, big eyeball on the front. Looks <laughs> like a cat's eye. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's very it, literal. It's always it's always fun for me to just okay we have a word for this now it's just a drone you know yes, just yep. send up a drone and and they're looking for them we also get some backstory on why the the broken glass is so important to Professor Sorensen right it's that their solar system is dependent on a dying sun right and I'm like you have spaceships <laughs> go <Move>. elsewhere you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but no, instead of instead of uh, evacuating their solar system to somewhere else, Professor Sorensen is out here looking for broken glass so they can power up their sun again. Yes, that would be handy. So uh, m- meanwhile, the, dr- the drone is tracking the Doctor and Sarah. Uh, it's loud enough that anyone should be able to avoid being seen by it, but they don't. Yeah. But it, uh, they show up at the at the cave with the strange pool. At the um, no reflection pool. 
the no reflect. Yeah. Yes, the where the the uh, something related to the creature. The Monestrans show up and they take the doctor into custody. But in the struggle, this is when poor Ponty falls into the into the pool hole abyss. Then there's a there's this tension between Professor Sorensen and the controller Salomar. Uh, Sorensen, you know, claims to have connections in high places, and the controller insists this is a military mission, and we have seven deaths to investigate and execute the bad guys that we've captured so far. Yet another meme for Doctor Who: the civilian scientist versus the military. Yes. The uh, the doctor then d- does some more exposition that uh, tells us that Zeta Minor, the planet, is is the boundary between the universe we know and an anti-universe, an anti-matter universe, and tells Sorensen that they're not allowed to take any samples from the planet. And and not just because the samples are intrinsically dangerous, but because they won't be allowed to. It's like the outline creature on the planet is made of antimatter and wants all of its broken glass antimatter babies on the planet with it. <laughs> right. And will not let the ship leave. Yes. But Sorensen really wants to head out of there because all the broken glass he's got in the thermos bottles, he says six pounds of that will power their sun for 300 years. That's that's some pretty potent stuff, I have to, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. That would be good. And I didn't run the math on would six pounds of antimatter really do that. It might. But the science about antimatter in this episode is really silly. Well, yes. It's basic. They don't really understand. The writers don't really understand what antimatter is. They even <laughs> mentioned that if it comes into contact with matter, it, it annihilates. Yes. And then they hold and, it in their hand. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> or or it, we don't see that happening. So, uh, yeah. well, the doctor takes like a regular spoon and like pushes, you know, shovels some out onto the regular countertop. And yes. pours this fluid on it, and it yes. does nothing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the the uh, the doctor and Sarah are locked into the quarantine room with the samples and the TARDIS. Which, if they think it's their spaceship, if the Menestrians think this is the Doctor's spaceship, why would you put him in there with? Uh, never mind. We do get a nice discussion though of why they yeah. don't just leave. Right. Because I was say, Sarah, Sarah says, "Let's just get out of here." And the doctor's like, "No, it, it's tempting to let them kill themselves with the antimatter." But it won't just be them. It will destroy the universe. Dum, dum, dum. So we have to stay. Yes. High stakes. We have high stakes now. Yep. So as they try to launch the ship from the surface, they have a power drain and the alien creature is approaching now. And so all the red shirts go out to get killed. And uh, they don't really have red shirts, but that's yeah. essentially what they are. And they have to follow the doctor's suggestion, which is to superpower the force fields by, you know, connecting to, to some atomic thing. The doctor then proposes that they leave the samples behind, and he'll go com- communicate with the creature to convince it to yeah. let them go. He's going to negotiate with the outline. Yes, yeah, so uh, he goes to the pool, uh, but while he's at the, the cave pool abyss, the creature emerges and the doctor falls in. Oh, um, that's terrible. So uh, everyone assumes th- th- that's where the, the second episode ends, and the third episode begins with everyone assuming the doctor is dead. Yeah, but he's really falling down to Lidsville. <laughs> Lidsville? <laughs> yeah, that's that was a live action um uh, uh Saturday morning television program when I was a kid. It starred Butch Patrick from the Munsters. Uh-huh. And it was it was made by Sid and Marty Croft and it was oh, about yeah. a magical town where everyone was a hat. And so there was like a football hat and a football helmet and a, a pirate hat and a chef's hat. And this boy from our world named Mark followed the magician Charles Nelson Riley into his backstage room. And, Never follow. And, and, yeah. and, his, and the magician's hat grew enormous. And Mark falls into the hat in the opening credits of every episode and falls to he's falling and falling down this in this dark void. Until he gets to Lidsville. And so that's what's happening to the doctor. He's heading down to Lidsville now. And, you know, <laughs> Lidsville is the cuckoo-cookiest. Lidsville is the grooviest. Lidsville is the living end. And if you ever go to Lidsville, you'll be glad you did. Because everyone <laughs> who goes to Lidsville really flips his lid. <laughs> How's that for a topper? <laughs> Jimmy never how much forgets drugs? anything. <laughs> how, how, how many and what kind of drugs were involved in everything that crop? were involved i was it going was, to say that. It, it was a lot apparently this was after hr puff and stuff i was oh. yeah, about hr puff 
I was thinking maybe they were falling to the land of the loss with the sleaze tax, but uh, but there's that yeah. too, yeah. So yes, they've assumed <laughs> that the doctor is dead instead of going to Lidsville. Uh, the controller and Sorensen argue over whether to leave the samples behind, of course. Uh, while Sarah Jane slips out to go find the doctor, she goes to uh, the doctor's falling through the vortex between worlds until he runs into the energy creature there. And uh, Sorensen then sneaks into the quarantine room to save one of his sample containers before the rest of it can be tossed out the airlock. Uh, Sarah Jane comes to the pool in time to pull the doctor out. I'm thinking, where's poor Ponty? Is he still in the vortex falling? Well, they explain that, uh, kind of, because before he left, the doctor took a bunch of the broken glass and put it in a, a toffee tin. Right. And when he gets back, he, he, he turns over the broken glass and, and there's like, you had the antimatter? It's like, yeah, how do you think I survived the fall into Lidsville? Right. And right. so it was because Ponty didn't have any of the broken glass that he didn't survive, apparently. Ah, uh, yes, that's it. So Vyshinsky, the, the XO or counselor, he uh, ends up stopping the takeoff procedure when he sees that the doctor is alive because the eyeball drone is still watching. And he goes he goes out to bring him back despite the controller's objection. So he's disobeying uh, the the tin pot dictator's or orders. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, Sorensen is examining the crystals in his quarters. And as they glow red, his eyes start to glow red, too. Yeah. This is where we're shifting from Forbidden Planet to Jekyll and Hyde. And he gets really thirsty for this dry ice coffee that he likes to drink. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's coffee. He pours it into a coffee mug. It looks like coffee. Yeah. But then there's this dry ice mist that comes up. Can and he's really thirsty for that. And I thought that it, this is connected to the fact that all of the corpses, when they cease being invisible, are desiccated. Yes. Because they made a big deal that the water is sucked out of them. So I thought he's chugging this coffee because he's thirsty, because he's now infected by antimatter, and so he needs extra fluids. Right. But it turns out that's not the case. We later find out that this is a medicine that he's come <laughs> up with for himself to protect himself from anti-quark penetration. So it's something he's, <laughs> yep. he's chugging this stuff to keep protecting himself from the antimatter. Right, right. There's a there's a whole lot of this is one of the issues with this story is we have a whole lot of these things in different directions you know desiccated bodies this the stuff that he's going to take for anti quark and it's like I, I guess kind of wish they had settled in on one thing and just gone with it but there's a whole lot of you know stuff going on uh so the the doctor is unconscious and he's brought to sick bay uh, on a stretcher and uh, they they. Try meanwhile they try to take off again, but it doesn't work. The doctor thinks it's because he had that little tin of antimatter in his pocket, uh, but but uh, it really the uh, Sorensen's sample jar that it's, he has. It's both. Well, it's both, right? But uh, the the crewman who's tasked with jettisoning the doctor's little sample thing is attacked by Sorensen and killed the same way the others are. He's he's uh, got all the, the you know moisture sucked out of him. So you don't have to be an outline to be a moisture vampire. That's right. Yeah. Oh, this is like uh, an episode of Star Trek. So <laughs> Sorensen, meanwhile, is turning into Mr. Hyde, and he tries to implicate the doctor and Sarah in the killing in order to deflect attention from himself. Like, you know, the, if, if someone's dying on board, it must be the aliens, as they refer to them. I, I think that he's sincere about that. I think he doesn't realize that he's he's the problem. Mm, okay. Okay. I mean, I, that's, that's possible, given yeah. the circumstances. What, so, what I really like, though, is after Morelli has been killed, despite his Italian name, yes. we, have, we have his burial at space. And Vyshensky yep. says, what was his denomination? He was Morestran Orthodox. Oh, one of those. Okay. So they start playing <laughs> tapes. They start playing tape, funeral rite tapes. <laughs> yes. like, yeah. We may have to play the last rites, but we don't have to listen to them. And he pots them down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought it was an interesting... Uh, addition to the story is this religious observance yeah. here. Uh, exactly. But uh, yes, the idea is that they can have the last rites from the body. That's why they would need to find out uh, why. And we see an image of the body being ejected into space, a little burial at sea sort of image there. Um, and right, This is right after the autopsy to determine, yes, he was killed in the same way as the others. And since they've gone to the trouble to have the props department build a port for ejecting things into space... We're going to get to see that port used for ejecting other things into space. <laughs> if you're going to have 
Yes, it's the yeah. Chekhov's ejection port. So the controller, uh, he seems to, like I, I said before, an easily led fool who shifts blame wherever someone points him. So the doctor asks Sorensen if he ever considered if he's wrong, that there's no way to exploit anti-quark energy to repower the sun. And the the control the uh, Sorensen seems baffled that he would be wrong on this. So the the controller takes the doctor to the TARDIS, leaving Sarah with with Sorensen. But Sorensen starts to transform again into Hyde, which causes Sarah to go rigid again. Again, not much explanation on that, but yeah. But he leaves and goes and kills one of the red shirts. And also, the doctor gives us a name for our monster of the week. Now Sorensen has become Anti Man. Yes, yes. We, he, when he comes back and finds Sarah, he will identify him as Anti-Man. Which I, I, I enjoy that. Um, he, uh, yeah, because he hears Sarah scream and comes running back. Uh, which the, I do like the fact that the Sarah screaming while the Doctor in, in Salomar in the uh, quarantine room gives the Doctor the opportunity to, now that Salomar's distracted, to clock him one and knock him out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is great. Uh, so that, that was good. Uh, so the controller, meanwhile, recovers and comes back and shoots the doctor with his phaser beam. The, and from what we can tell, based on the effects of these things on people, they're basically stun guns. Yeah, they're, they 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 don't seem very effective at all uh, for for really causing violence. So he he orders them both to be spaced, thrown out in the ejection port. Vishinsky objects, but uh, Sorensen, meanwhile, is too far gone to even be uh, <laughs> coherent. And that brings us to the, the, the fourth episode in this serial. The, uh, the pilot is on the command deck, uh, and he gets attacked by a creature. An outline. An outline, which sends everyone running to the bridge. And Vyshinsky says, well, we can't eject the Doctor and Sarah now. Obviously, they weren't, they weren't the ones responsible for killing this guy. They were in, in the ejection port, ready to go. And he takes command from the controller, who says, you know, wait for it. You'll regret this. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's that's uh, they always say. You know, like I'm taking yeah. command from you. You'll regret this, which they never do because they they're always right to take command from the crazy captain. The doctor realizes that the anti man is Sorensen, and so he's going to go confront him. While Sarah tells Vishinsky to shut all the hatches, all the uh, emergency bulkhead hatches, which are spaced every three feet in the corridor. Which I mean, this is a real secure ship. You don't want any. Uh, <laughs> any air getting out more than you can. The now ex-controller thinks it's preposterous that Sorensen is behind any of this and proving himself to be an idiot. We finally see the Doctor using the sonic screwdriver mm -hmm. that makes an appearance here he, to get into Sorensen's quarters, and he finds the crystals and the red liquid that Sorensen's been drinking and tests it on the crystals. He takes some of the dry ice coffee and puts it on the um, on the broken glass, and it causes it to shine. And yeah. the doctor and they don't, brown, yeah, yeah, they don't explain this with exposition at the time, but in hindsight, that's what tells the doctor that Sorensen's coffee is up to protect him from anti quark penetration, but it's right. not working because right. when he put it on the on the broken glass it sh it shined light, and so so I kind of actually like the subtlety of how we just see the doctor do this and only later and without a lot of explanation its purpose becomes clear. Right. When Sorensen comes in he basically tells him that you know what you're doing isn't saving yourself it's making it inevitable. You're actually accelerating the process. Um and he convinces him to take the crystals that he's been hoarding and do the right thing. Yeah, by which he means eject yourself and your broken glass into space. Yeah. Yes, yes, because he's now infected with with the antimatter, so he he has to go too. Uh, but um, before he can, well, before we get to that, the meanwhile, that Salomar loses his cool, grabs something dangerous, uh, some, a something neutron that they've been accelerator. Around. Yes, that which just has me laying around on the on the bridge, and plans to kill himself with Sorensen to demonstrate real leadership. Like, dude, yeah. Go. Which, of course, you know is going to go well. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This guy has been a disaster as a leader this entire time. Sorensen, meanwhile, get, gets into the ejection tray in, in sickbay, that ejection port. And just as he is about to hit the lever to send himself out into space, he transforms into into uh, Mr. Jekyll again. And that's uh, too late. So 
uh, Salomar heads to the quarantine room where Sorensen is, and he's planning to use the neutron accelerator on Sorensen. But again, he makes the critical error, and it has the uh, yeah. the wrong effect. So and- he 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 dies, and we now have multiple outline creatures of Sorensen running around. Yes, it 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 it, it created copies of him. So the the Anti Man has uh, multiplied, and he go- so the Doctor goes to the quarantine room where he shoots Sorensen and drags him into the TARDIS. Oh, and Sorensen at this point, as Mr. Hyde, it, they tr- try to change his appearance. You know, they give yes. him different makeup and stuff, and that's fine. But now that he's, like, totally become anti-man, he's he's so comical, he's lumbering around. <laughs> yeah. And he's sticking out, in and out his tongue. It's like, and it looks just ridiculous. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's a little over the top. So uh, the doctor restrains Sorensen with some uh, some uh, wrist and ankle restraints that he happened to have lying around on the TARDIS, and take, it takes him off the ship. So they they take he takes the TARDIS off the ship, back to the planet. He he doesn't seem to like so the, the I I didn't mention the ship is trying to escape from the planet, but right. because of the antimatter on it, it's being pulled back, and so it's not able to make escape velocity or just. To yeah, get the, away, the, it's being the animator is acting like a, a almost like a rubber band where you've reached the end of the rubber band and it's either it's going to snap back or break. Yes, as the doctor says, uh, we'll we'll go back faster and faster until, of course, we reach the surface. At which point, we'll stop with a bang. <laughs> which yeah. that, that was a, a nice understatement. But yeah, he he, he takes Sorensen off and doesn't seem to be concerned at this point with the ship crashing. Uh, the restraints don't hold Sorensen, of course, and so the doctor has to lure him outside to the antimatter pool. On on the planet where he knocks him in, uh, that causes the creatures on the ship to disappear, and for the ship to start pulling away from the planet, so that all the antimatter is gone. Uh, meanwhile, Sorensen's not dead; he actually appears, reappears next to the pool. This time, uh, without the bad wig and the sticking out tonguey bits, he's he's back in his normal form. And the TARDIS, the Doctor, and he take off in the TARDIS just as. The big antimatter creature, the outline, the visible outline, rises from the pool, um, and we are told it let Sorensen go because the doctor kept his promise to return all the antimatter. He gave his word as a time lord to it that they would give back all the broken glass. And all the glass. So back on the ship, the doctor ends up redirecting Sorensen from his previous research into broken glass. <laughs> and this is and, great. <laughs> it tells him to harvest energy from the kinetic movement of planets. To power your sun. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> power your sun from yeah, the planet orbiting don't planets. generate quite enough kinetic energy to power a sun. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, probably not six pounds of antimatter either, but but that's entirely possible. And that's where we end. Uh, so uh, my assessment of this, uh, there, there are aspects of this that were they were okay. Uh, I like Sarah Jane in this. Um, she wasn't at all screechy. Vishinsky actually was kind of a, ended up being kind of a cool character. Some of the secondary characters had some interesting moments, like the guy <laughs> complaining about having to carry things in and out of the ship all the time. Carry it in, carry it out, carry. It. That was kind of yeah. funny. It felt like Robert Holmes, maybe a script editor, was doing that. Yeah, that might have been that's little... kind of a Robert Holmes thing to have the working man, you know, complaining <laughs> right. about stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, I kind of felt like that. Though, so I, I, I like those bits, but the Salomar, the the controller, was just really annoying, and there were <laughs> a lot of holes in this in the plot of this one. Too, uh, as Tolkien said, too much uh, bread and too little butter. So, mm. uh, but I'll leave it to you guys. What, what's your assessment, Father Corey? I kind of, I kind of agree. I like the description of it. This where this is kind of a stereotypical paint by numbers classic Who episode. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we talked about the tropes, you know, all the things, the, the the military and the civilian, the the crazy scientists and all that stuff. It's like this is a, especially during the third and fourth Doctors, this is paint by numbers, right? There's even a moment early on where they're in the base on the planet, and they actually talk about the fact that we're now a base under siege. Uh right. There is actually a nice moment where the Doctor quotes. Um, Lawrence Oates of the Scott Expedition of the South Pole, where he has oh, that yeah. famous line, I'm just going outside and maybe sometime, which- He never came if back. If you don't understand the reference, yeah, he, that guy never came back. <laughs> That's what the doctor's saying. I, <laughs> I might not come back. It's the typical uh, understatement. Yeah. 
I I enjoyed this. I, now, so you know, one of the things that the TARDIS wiki pointed out is this is you could think of this as Philip Hinchcliffe's first real episode because even though Philip Hinchcliffe had produced a few of the prior episodes, they had been commissioned by his predecessors. And so this was the first story that he gave story approval to, and it really sets kind of the tone for the Philip Hinchcliffe era, because Philip Hinchcliffe and uh, Robert Holmes wanted to take the show in a much darker, more atmospheric direction, very gothic. And that, mm-hmm. that as gothic aesthetic is going to predominate on the show, and it's going to get him in trouble with Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> but this episode really has that. It, I, my notes are a little slow, but atmospheric. And the dark, creepy, weird alien jungle really sells that, and the lurking horror of the outlines and Anti-Man. I mean, mean, so Forbidden Planet is based on The Tempest, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a piece of gothic fiction. And so you can see how those kind of elements are creeping in here, and they're going to become much more prominent. In fact, our next Tom Baker episode in sequence, I'm not sure what, whether we're covering it next in our reviews, but our next, Tom, our next Tom Baker episode in sequence is The Pyramids of Mars, right? which is another really dark gothic. I mean, we even it's set in a gothic mansion with a priest hole and everything. Yeah. yeah. And we've done uh, like Horror Fang Rock already, which is later yeah. than this, and that's very much gothic. It's interesting, too, that as gothic, as dark as they went, they apparently pulled back a little on the, some of the darker elements by having Sorensen reappear next to the pool. Originally, I think they were going to have him just die. He's thrown in yeah. and be dead. But having him come back because they thought that, that maybe it was too much for a kid's show to have him die. So, But not too much for the red shirt. Like <laughs> Any other notes on this episode for me there? All right. So uh, we should probably wrap things up there. Uh, we, have, um, we do have some feedback uh, that we got. From our episode where we talked about uh, Russell T. Davies and the Tenth Doctor retrospective, and uh, our first feedback comes from uh, Jamie J. Forty on YouTube, who wrote, uh, "Female opinion, but Rose is the best companion. She's the hmm. bad wolf in the interface of the moment." From the day of the Doctor, she connected with the Doctor's loneliness when he thinks he's destroyed his planet and all his people. They're quite bonded and seem to be having fun even when they're in danger. The Tenth Doctor gets a lot more prickly after he loses her. Uh, I enjoy New Who, but I'm particularly emotional about the Russell T. Davies era. I can't believe you gremlins don't like Dalek and Father's Day. What? Uh, (laughs) I don't think we said we didn't like it. It just weren't in our favorites. I don't dislike them. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think any of us ever pointed them out as dislikes. They just weren't on our likes list either. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I like the father elements, Rose's father elements with Father's Um, Day. Yeah. I I might have said Father's Day. As I recall now, I can't remember for sure. <laughs> I, I actually, <laughs> I, I like, I like a lot of what happens in Father's Day. I don't like the flying, creepy pterodactyl things. I think the CGI is, yeah. and and that visualization for what happens in a time paradox is not my favorite. But I actually love getting to meet uh, Pete, uh, Rose's father, and yep, and watch his personal story arc. Yes, I agree. I think that was a, a great addition, and good that they brought him back. Uh, she also says that I'd like offer that David Tennant's doctor is like Tom Baker and Matt Smith is the one who's more like Patrick Troughton. Uh, no, I agree. Na- yeah. yeah, I oh, think yeah. that's that's clear. Uh, you nailed it about uh, Russell D. Davies' time. It's about character. Moffat's a storyteller. I've enjoyed his doctors, including Capaldi, but not the same amount of emotion involved. Thank you, Jamie. That's that's good. Uh, Amy Flowers writes on Facebook. Uh, Look out for the hate mail, Jimmy. In the less than positive talk on Rose, and for the record, I don't disagree with you, she says. So, no. Uh, <laughs> and I don't mind Rose, it's just I don't think she's the bee's knees. Yeah. She, no. she, I think there's a lot of love for Rose because of the love story aspect of mm-hmm. it. I think that, mm-hmm. this, that plays into it. For the best and worst, should Moffat's episodes be considered a Russell T, in a Russell T. Davies perspective? Retrospective. <laughs> well, it was. It, I mean, if if he hadn't gone on to become showrunner, that would be the only place to consider them. Yeah, right. and it's like everybody else who didn't become showrunner later. Well, they were part of the Russell T Davies era. Yeah, yeah. I think D- Davies. He's the one who gives skip, script approval. He's the 
He's the oversight. Well, so, you know, we're, it's, we're not just considering ones he wrote. And, and most, of, most of those stories when Russell T. Davies or when uh, uh, Moffat wrote them, he had no idea he was going to become the showrunner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I mean, that, that, that would, that would have been a decision probably made in the last season before he took over. So, yeah. Uh, she adds that uh, Stephen Moffat's an amazing writer for one-off stories, but I found his seasons lacking, but that's a different discussion, <laughs> which yeah. we will have at the end of uh, his time, uh, which we did have at the end of his time, actually. Uh, she said, uh, I find Blink to be overrated. And then she says, listen to your episode discussing it. You wave away all the plot holes because it's Blink. Hmm. I'd did have we? to re-listen to it and see if we wave away plot holes because it's Blink. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to re-listen myself. Um, I think, I I think I enjoyed it despite plot holes. If, you know that I, were there. I think that, yeah, yeah. I mean, Moffat plot holes mm-hmm. is a lot. <laughs> He's not great at <laughs> plugging all the holes. That's I'll, yeah. I'll acknowledge that. What I know is when I show, I mean, I do use Blink as one of my intro to Doctor Who episodes for people, and I have yet to have anyone who is not impressed by it. Even people yeah. who don't normally yeah. like science fiction, they like Blink. Right. And there are certain moments where, like in Blink. Um, Sally Sparrow, like we mentioned the elder Billy Shipton when he dies, mm-hmm. yes. you know, we have that very touching moment in the hospital and he, he knows his life is going to last as long as the rain and we see the rain falling and then the rain stops and we see Sally Sparrow standing there in his hotel, in his uh, hospital room and she's still with him. And then the music starts thumping and she's resolved and we're off. And it's like right. this mm-hmm. really great emotional turning point that even carries uh, the music itself is carrying it at that point. And there's just a lot. I think there's a lot to love about Blink, despite yeah. whatever plot holes there may be. Right. Right. Uh, so for, for her favorite, she says uh, her favorite two are Eccleston. Favorite two of Eccleston's time are Dalek and Bad Wolf slash Parting of the Ways. Uh-huh. Uh, top, top five for Tenet are Partners in Crime, Human Nature, Family of Blood, which is one, Fires of Pompeii, The Girl in the Fireplace, and The Unicorn and the Wasp. Those are all good. I think that, I mean, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't yeah, have put I'm Unicorn and the Wasp. Yeah. Unicorn and the Wasp, but the others, yeah. Uh, there were elements of Unicorn and the Wasp that I liked, but yeah. 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 <laughs> There's um, elements of almost everything. That's true. That's true. Uh, it is Doctor Who. We, we do love Doctor Who. There's a few things we don't like. Uh, which which she's about to tell us because the bottom two for Eccleston are Aliens of New York and World War Three, yeah, and yeah, yep, totally the Long agree. Game, yeah, the the Long Game was also the uh, the farty creatures, uh, which I can never remember their long name. What the, were wait were the were the wait, Rax, was that the Long Game? Fall- I don't think so. The Long Game oh. is the one where, if I'm remembering correctly, is the one that's set on Satellite Five, where they have all the game shows, including the Android. Oh yes, the really terrible puns and the <laughs> house guest show and the yep. Yep. clothing show makeover show for Captain Jack and the weakest oh. link and all that. Yeah, and that's that's where Adam got kicked out because he decided to get the hole in his head. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. And uh, it's also the one with guest starring Simon Pig. Simon Pig. Yes, thank you. Oh, and that <laughs> horrible creature on the ceiling. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, okay, I, I'm with I'm with you on that one, uh, Amy. Um, and then her bottom five for tenor are Daleks of Manhattan slash Evolution of the Dal- Daleks. Agree. The, the Daleks take Manhattan, as they call it. Tooth yeah. and Claw. Mm-hmm. I agree. Fear Her. That, yeah. That, that's in my yeah. This Scribbles last, episode. Yeah. Last of the Time Lords. Interesting that you picked that one. And I, I'm sympathetic to that because I really hate what they do with the Toclophane and the Master being so Daffy Duck in that episode. Yep. Yeah. 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 And uh, the Lazarus experiment. Which yeah, that's not that's yeah. the one with Mark Gatiss becomes the giant bug from Men in Black. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, that I I I think that's a those are that's those are fair lists. I, mm-hmm. I'd say so. Yeah. Thank you, Amy, for your for that. Uh, Bennett Gillespie writes on Facebook, personally, I'm grateful for, to Mr. Davies for giving me a touch point with my daughter, born in 2000, and my son, born in 2005. A shared mm. delight in the same TV program is a simple joy. Yeah, I agree. that's a very good thing. Uh, he says, I found the whole Donna's story arc, especially with how it ended and the close of Tenet's story, to be very effective and moving. I'd, I'd also agree. All your top fives and bottom fives are great choices. Thank you for the joy you guys bring to the pod. 
Thank you, Bennett. Appreciate that. Uh, Then, and finally, Jason Thayer writes on Facebook, I have an idea. I think each time you end an era in Classic Who, you should have a retrospective on it, just like you did with this. Tell us your favorite and worst episodes. Oh, and Dom, you should tell us if your rankings change. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what he meant, but if as like as we go through it, if my rankings change, well, rank to, probably. I would guess like rankings of doctors and rankings of companions and things like that. You know, kind of four yeah. episodes. Four I episodes mean, too. You we, know. we might find like, ooh, we like this episode at the time, but once you see it in the overall context of its era, yeah. eh, maybe not so much. That's true. That's true. It'll be. It, it's kind of tough to do a retrospective for each doctor as we finish because we're probably going to finish all of them around the same time because the way we're going through them we're we're kind mm-hmm. of trying to go through them methodically so that we yeah. end them around the same time but uh but we what well, we could potentially you know do retrospectives for the classic who producers like we just started on the philip hinchcliffe era and so at some point we could talk about you know the end of the philip hinchcliffe era which then begins the john nathan turner era <laughs> oh boy <laughs> I can already see predictions of how, what our conversation is going to be. All I can say, though, Jimmy, is I, you reminded me that thanks to John Nathan Turner, we did get uh, number five. So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is good good aspects to the GNT era. Yes, yeah. we got number five, and we also got Chameleon, and we got Adric, and a number of other things. <laughs> yep, we, weigh them in the balance. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for your feedback. We do we do love to get feedback from our listeners. Uh, so we do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including David J, Chris E, James S, Jonathan H, and Ryan Z. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at Starquest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com/give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of the fourth Doctor story, Planet of Evil? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, The Time of the Angels. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, you and I are scientists, Professor. We buy our privilege to experiment at the cost of total responsibility. Right. This is going to be fun.